This is Matthew Dahl. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Ribcast, the official podcast of the Chesswall Injury Society. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Silvana Marasco. I hope you enjoy her insights regarding rib blading. This is Matthew Dahl, and today I'm joined uh, by Dr. Marasco. Dr. Marasco, thank you for being here. Uh, I wondered if you could take a second and introduce yourself. Oh, thank you, Matthew, for having me. Uh, so my name is Silvana Marasco. I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon in Melbourne, Australia. And Dr. Marasco, what's your what's your role with the Chest Wall Injury Society? Uh, so I'm on the uh, board, uh, the executive board of the uh, uh, Chest Wall Injury Society. I uh, attended the first meeting, which I think was three years ago. Uh, Tom White rang me and uh, asked me to come along to the first meeting and I was very excited to attend and uh, I've been attending each year since. It has been a wonderful opportunity for me uh, to speak to other people with an interest in rib fixation. Because it's such a new surgical area, there are hardly any of my colleagues, particularly at that time in Australia, who did any rib fixation. So I had no one locally to talk to or ask advice from. Uh, so joining the society for me was uh, a wonderful opportunity to find like-minded people to discuss an area of surgery that I feel is very interesting. That's great. Uh, Doctor, could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your up, where you trained and how you got into thoracic surgery? Oh, that's so boring. Uh, I was born in Melbourne. I grew up in Melbourne. I did my training in Melbourne and uh, <laughs> yes, I'll, nearly left. Um, but of course, Melbourne has been voted the most livable city in the world for seven years. So why would I leave? <laughs> You've already arrived. <laughs> That's it. Um, in terms of cardiothoracic surgery, so about 70% of my practice is cardiac and about 30% is thoracic. Uh, and I have uh, just sort of fallen into a lot of the rib fixation work. Uh, so when I was going through my training, and uh, as all the residents know, you sort of rotate through different specialties, and I thought I, I rotated through cardiothoracics, and I just loved it. And I thought oh, this is the specialty I want to do because it had the technical aspects that I love doing the surgery with your hand. I love the physiology of managing the patients in intensive care, and um, I love the group of patients which for cardiac are a lot of older patients who are ever so grateful that you've saved their life. The rib fixation cohort is quite different, um, and they're <laughs> a very group as well. <laughs> yeah. Did you expect to go into surgery, and did you expect to enjoy cardiothoracic surgery, or was that something of a surprise? I always I thought I'd do surgery from quite a young age. Um, I've always enjoyed doing things with my hands. When I was growing up, I was always making things. I used to do plastic models. I used to do electric circuit boards and soldering and all that sort of thing. So I always knew I'd do something with my hands. So it was always going to be surgery. Well, that's great. What are some of your hobbies? What are some of the things that you enjoy doing outside of the hospital? Well, I must say there's not a lot of time outside of cardiothoracic surgery. <laughs> uh, so I'm a full-time surgeon at the Alfred Hospital, which is a public hospital. Um, we, I do all of the 
uh, heart and lung transplants there, ventricular assist devices. That's where the trauma workload comes in. So all, most of my rib fixation is there. And then I do my private practice at another hospital down the road, which is the Epworth Hospital. Um, and that private practice mostly focuses on cardiac, although there's a sprinkling of thoracics in there. Uh, so outside of sort of running between two hospitals and looking after two children who are still quite young, age eight and 10, uh, doesn't leave a lot of extra time. That, that is fair. That I'm sure keeps you very, very busy. It does. What if you had decided not to go into medicine? Where would you be today? Oh, I often wonder that. Uh, I really have no idea. See, I grew up with, uh, so my name's Italian. My father came from Italy in the 50s when a lot of migrants came to Australia. And uh, as is typical of a lot of Italian and Greek parents, as I was grow growing up, the understanding was that I should do either medicine or law. <laughs> and there wasn't really any other uh, vocation that was really seen as acceptable for a migrant family. Um, and so fortunately, uh, I put down on my preferences, medicine and law, and uh, I put medicine at top and I got into that. And I suppose if I'd done law, I, I do worry that maybe I would have been a bit bored, but um, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Well, moving into more of a, a clinical discussion, I wondered if today you would tell us your philosophy of pain control or pain management for patients with complex chest wall injuries? Uh, yes, look, I think it's incredibly important uh, getting their pain under control. And it's quite interesting. I think we've become much more aggressive in managing patients' pain just over the last few years. When I last did uh, my, uh, my last randomised control trial, which was sort of about eight years ago now, uh, a lot of these patients were intubated and ventilated. Um, and so because they were essentially sedated, uh, there was no loco-regional analgesia. Um, but now we're much more aggressive in um, not intubating these patients if we don't need to. Uh, and it means that their, uh, their pain control needs to be so much more tightly controlled because we don't want to make them too drowsy. Uh, and we want to keep them breathing well, but we want to have them um, well sedated. So at our hospital, we're using uh, all the usual analgesia like opiates, maybe ketamine infusions if they're difficult to manage. Um, we'll put in uh, thoracic epidurals if they need them. Sometimes we use paravertebrals, which are a little bit uh, less reliable. They're very sort of operator dependent in how successful they are. And we do other blocks like serratus anterior blocks we've been doing more recently. Uh, so, so a lot of local regional blocks which are being managed by the um, anaesthetists and pain specialists in the hospital. And do you have specific criteria or triggers that would direct you to one block versus another? Or is that at the discretion of the anaesthetist? No, it's more at the discretion of the anaesthetist. Uh, but it would mostly depend on uh, the location of the fractures and where the patient has the most pain. Uh, so obviously someone with bilateral fractures would get an ep epidural. Um, someone with more localised sort of fractures on one side might get a paravertebral on that side or a serratus anterior block. We would probably try just 
opiate analgesia plus or minus a ketamine infusion first um, if they just had more sort of localised pain. Uh, but it's very variable and it seems to be dependent sometimes on which anaesthetist is on duty. Sure. What about in the uh, perioperative period? Is there anything you do uh, during your operations or in the immediate post-operative period to try to get better control of people's pain? Yes, that's a very good point. So if the patient comes to me and they're already ventilated and they're not going to be extubated sort of immediately post-operatively, then I probably won't give them any specific uh, local anaesthetic. Uh, but if they've come to me and they weren't intubated and we're planning to extubate them immediately post-operatively, uh, then we would often try to put in a paravertebral under direct vision. And because we're operating, we can easily put in a thoracoscope and visualise the positioning of the paravertebral so that you can get sort of a perfect position. And then we would run that for at least 48, 72 hours uh, to try to give them good analgesia in that early post-operative period. Do you have any exposure to or experience with the cryoablation of intercostal nerves? No, I don't, but I love the idea of it. Um, I did see that at the last conference, the CWIS conference. Uh, I have... I did have um, a patient where I, I just cut the nerve. So in the past, if they've had very troublesome uh, long-term pain, and this is more for the chronic patients, um, uh, we sometimes will uh, cut the intercostal nerve and just cut out a one-centimetre segment so that they have an area of numbness rather than an area of pain. Oh, very um, interesting. I haven't done that a lot, and I must say I haven't had a lot of success with it. Uh, I had one patient who ended up with worse pain, bizarrely, um, so I felt like I had really done him a disservice. But I think the idea of the cryoablation sounds like a, a very good idea. I don't know if I would go to that extent for in the acute setting because I think once you uh, put all the ribs back into position and fix them, you improve their pain so markedly anyway. But maybe for more of those chronic pain patients, it might be more useful. Do you use or do you have concerns about NSAIDs in the perioperative period uh, as they affect wound healing? No, I, I, would, I wouldn't use them long term, but I, I don't have any issue with using non-steroidals early on as long as their renal function is okay. Excellent. And then one other kind of specific scenario that we run into a fair amount and I would assume that it's the same in your practice setting is uh, trauma in patients who already have significant narcotic dependence. Any uh, pearls for that managing that patient's pain? Oh, that's a very good question. And it sort of goes back to what we alluded to earlier, that often these trauma patients are a slightly different cohort to the cardiac patients that I'm used to operating on. And I think uh, uh, that is not an uncommon scenario patients who already have some sort of opiate dependence and then they're involved in a motor vehicle accident or some other sort of trauma. Uh, I don't have any pearls there. I think they're a very difficult group to manage. Um, <laughs> clearly, if, clearly, if they have the accident, they have real pain and you just have to really turn all the analgesia up. Um, but, look, I, I think they're a tricky population 
And I don't think you ever do a perfect job in those patients. So I guess the pearl is I shouldn't feel bad when I'm really struggling with those patients. Not at all, no. <laughs> well, Dr. Marasco, I wondered if you could um, speak to us as a thoracic surgeon as, and as someone who understands kind of the, the physics behind this about um, what makes rib fixation and what makes plates work for these patients. Mm, yes, certainly. Uh, so my interest in the actual physics behind rib fixation started when I started doing rib fixation and it was more than 10 years ago and uh, I went to the literature as I always do when I sort of do a procedure I'm unfamiliar with and I realised there were no papers or books or journal articles out there telling me how to do this surgery uh, and so I, I was enrolling patients in a pilot study doing flail chest patients who were ventilator dependent absorbable plates made out of a polylactide which uh, absorb over about 18 months uh, and they were designed for the fibula but I was noticing some hardware failures where um, the plates had pulled off the ribs and presumably the screws which were also polylactide had broken. Hmm. So uh, I teamed up with, a, with an engineering group here in Melbourne and we decided to do um, computer finite element analysis uh, of all of the forces that affect ribs when they're broken uh, and the forces that will impact on the plates that we use. And the, the data that we were able to generate from that um, showed me uh, where the plates are likely to fail. And obviously, most of the forces are centred around where the fracture is. So any plate that you put over the fracture is going to start to fail close to the uh, fracture line where there might be some residual movement and all the forces are pulling at the plate. The forces that are generated at a fracture site in the posterior part of the rib are far greater than the forces generated at the lateral or anterior aspect of the rib. And so uh, any um, prosthesis that is used posteriorly is under a lot more uh, strain than a prosthesis used in another part of the rib. Uh, and, and that certainly reflected my um, observation that a, a lot of our hardware failures were on the posterior ribs. So while I was using these absorbable plates, I stopped plating posterior fractures because we were having so many hardware failures. And so I was just uh, plating more of the anterior and lateral fractures and essentially converting the flail segments into simple fractured ribs. So I wasn't fixing mm -hmm. the posterior line of fractures, but I was fixing all of the more anterior line of fractures. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to work well because in that study, we did demonstrate benefits in terms of getting the patient off the ventilator and out of intensive care quicker. Uh, and it also gave me a unique opportunity uh, to review all of these patients uh, down the track after their ribs had healed. I was able to go back and review their outcomes. And I noticed that all of these patients who had these consecutive posterior rib fractures they were getting overlapping of the rib fracture and the, the ribs were actually healing with quite a bit of loss of length uh, because the posterior fractures were overlapping. 
And so uh, that led to an, another paper that I published um, suggesting that perhaps in the future we should be uh, fixing both the posterior and the lateral uh, ends of a, a flail segment uh, to ensure that we don't reduce the volume of the hemithorax if these fractures tend to overlap. Uh, mm -hmm. So we were able to generate quite a, quite a lot of interesting data. And in the meantime, of course, uh, a, a, quite a few different prostheses have come onto the market and we're using prostheses in Australia. We have available the Johnson & Johnson uh, Matrix rib set and the um, Innovations rib lock set and the um, Stratos set. Uh, and they're all titanium and titanium alloys, so we're not seeing the hardware failures that we saw with the polylactide uh, prostheses. Sure. One of the things I've been told by people who understand this data much more poorly than you do uh, is that ultimately a lot we'll see a lot of hardware failure if the bones don't heal. Um, is that true, and do you have concerns about using plates to bridge gaps? Yes, I think that is an issue. Uh, I think if the bone doesn't heal, uh, there is ongoing strain on the plate and I think we will see um, plates pulling off the ribs or potentially even the ribs fracturing again at the end of the plate uh, at a site remote from the original fracture. Um, so I do have concerns about bridging gaps with plates. So when you run into that scenario where you have uh, so a, a gap that you need to bridge, how are you handling that situation? Well, if it's in the acute situation and uh, for some reason they've got um, quite a, a nasty comminuted fracture in that area, I will often um, crush up any little fragments of the bone and try to turn it into a little bone graft and hold it into position with some absorbable material like gel foam or sponge stand or something that will hold it in that area uh, so that hopefully uh, the bone will grow in continuity eventually. I think it's pretty important to try to either use real bone or even an artificial bone graft to, to bridge that gap. I think long-term... Uh, it's not ideal if there is a gap there. Uh, now, in terms of patients who have um, tumours of the chest wall, that's quite a different situation when you, where you're cutting out quite a sort of significant segment. Mm -hmm. And I must say, I don't have a lot of experience uh, with tumour work of the chest wall. I mean, I, I sort of in the past have used methyl methacrylate sandwiches with um, proline mesh, um, and they seem to work all right. Um, but I think those patients are a slightly different population because they probably don't have the same lifespan as a trauma patient who's just having their ribs fixed. Uh, so I think that's an area that we need to keep a close eye on. Absolutely. That's very interesting. I think, you know, a lot of our understanding about uh, the anatomy of the ribs and, and how they move uh, really came from the work of uh, Botlang and Long. I mean, they've published quite a few papers uh, looking at the anatomy as they, as they designed the matrix rib set. And I find those papers incredibly 
uh, useful to look back on. People who don't operate on ribs think they're such a simple little bone that they're almost insignificant, but it's such a complicated uh, structure. Every single rib has a different radius of curvature and they all have different thicknesses that change along the length of the rib uh, as well as their shape. So posteriorly, they're more triangular in cross-section and anteriorly, they're quite narrow and oval. Uh, and so that makes it very difficult for the companies who, of course, want to generate a rib fixation prosthesis that they might only have two or three different sizes on the shelf that can fit all the ribs, but that's never going to be possible because the ribs just sure. change so much as you go down from rib one down to rib 12, and also as you go from posterior to anterior. Uh, and of course, ribs are constantly moving, as you know. Uh, so it's not like we're operating on a, um, what's a similar bone, like a, a metatarsal or a metacarpal, which is a small bone, which a plastic surgeon might put a K wire into, but then they'll wrap your hand up in plaster and tell you not to use it for weeks. And we don't have that luxury. Uh, so the, the fact that these bones are constantly moving um, is a very uh, unique aspect to the surgical fixation that we're trying to achieve. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Marasco, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate uh, hearing from you and uh, learning a little bit more about managing rib fixation. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ribcasts. Special thanks to Dr. Marasco for her time and insight. Thanks to Sarah Ann Whitbeck and Dr. Tom White and the entire Education Committee of the Chestwall Injury Society for their assistance with this project. Finally, thanks to the band Ask Again for the use of their music.